the need for mobile crisis response teams grows. A more proactive approach and stepping in when people are escalating to that point to avoid hospitalization is the best way to support people. I'm Jade Hindman. This is KPBS Midday Edition. A look at the psychology behind police violence. This is a case of people engaging in violence that they thought was right and that they thought they would be praised for afterwards. Plus, the love story and black history behind the Julian Hotel. And find out about a new play at the Diversionary Theater called High Table. That's ahead on Midday Edition. Donations come in many forms. A sustaining membership, a one-time gift, even that extra vehicle you no longer need. Learn more about the advantages of donating a vehicle. Here's how. Go to kpbs.careasy.org or call 877-KPBS-CAR. If you or perhaps someone you know has experienced a mental health crisis in the last two years, it was likely San Diego County's mobile crisis response team who showed up. The teams offer specialized help to those dealing with a mental health crisis, which they're finding looks different for everyone, and the need for help is much greater than anticipated. Joining me now with more is Brianna Lane, a program administrator for MCRT Telecare, and Mary Woods, a regional director of operations. Thank you both for joining us today. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. We're so excited to be here and be able to keep sharing the awesome work that MCRT is doing in the community. And I second that. So glad to have you guys here. Uh, So Mary, I'll start with you. It's been two years since this work started. What kind of feedback have you been getting from the community? Oh, we've been getting terrific feedback from the community. We're asked frequently to do presentations. We're asked frequently to outreach different communities um, with different backgrounds and uh, different needs. The, The folks that we serve directly, we've gotten very positive feedback in regards to satisfaction. So we're really proud of that. Brianna, I'm curious about the people at the center of these calls. What do you find are the biggest challenges for people experiencing a crisis like this? Is it aid and resources or is it just someone to help them through a difficult time? You know, I think what happens when anybody is in the moment of a crisis, you really lose all ability to think rationally and make rational decisions. And you can go from someone who is able to access resources or you have resources in the moment of a crisis, you can forget those things. You don't know where to find them. And so really our team is to go out there and help support them. So sometimes it is us connecting them to maybe new resources that they didn't have before. They didn't know was even available. A lot of times, though, we're really helping them tap back into resources that they already have. We really try to make the effort to not take too big of a leap for them. So try to help them get connected back to their PCP. Maybe they haven't seen them in six months and it's time for a checkup or call that therapist that they haven't seen in a couple of years and get reconnected. So it really depends. But I, I think what we try to do is do a full kind of biopsychosocial assessment of the individual we're serving, the family system they're in, and how can we figure out what's going to be the best support for them in that moment. And Mary, one of the main intentions behind these teams was to divert police officers away from these kinds of calls. Do you feel like this work is making a difference in that regard? 
Oh, yes, we definitely do. We've had a really terrific feedback from law enforcement in general, and we meet with them on a regular basis so that we're partners and it's collaborative. But we've gotten the feedback that we are making a difference. And our hope is, as we continue to grow, and we will continue to grow, that difference will be even greater. So law enforcement can address the needs of the community that they're designed to address. And they're not really designed to address the mental health needs. And although they do their best, they have welcomed our input and our approach and everything we're doing. So that's been nice. Brianna, where are you seeing the highest volume of calls and the greatest need for help? You know, we get asked that question often. And I think the really unique thing about MCRT is there's not a trend and pattern. There's not a high call volume in a certain area or an age. We really, truly see everything. And I think that the moment we start to see a trend and pattern or we're getting a lot of calls for like one specific population, maybe MCRT may not be doing the most efficient work. But so far, we we don't have a trend and pattern. We don't have high call volumes in certain symptoms or ages or things like that. And Mary, do you think there are any systemic issues that stand in the way of how we understand and approach our mental health? I think, you know, the communities at large, including San Diego, are doing a lot to try to get education out there to the general public. You see up to us on TV all the time, the commercials. And, you know, that's a big change. I've been doing this kind of work for several decades. And it's a big change, the educational push for people to really understand mental health, behavioral health issues and trauma informed care. You know, we've got a lot of vets coming back. We've got a lot of refugees. So I think the the bigger systemic issue is just getting education out across all of our communities throughout the nation. And going forward, what kind of resources do you think this program needs to expand and provide these services well into the future? I would give San Diego Behavioral Health Services a, a lot of credit here. They've, they've been sort of visionaries in that way. They've put forward a very thoughtful plan for growth for this service particularly. Also, other crisis services throughout the county of San Diego, CSUs, crisis stabilization centers, crisis walk-in assessment centers. So they've really done a good job creating sort of a web of support in the system of care. And I think they're also being forward-thinking of the need for growth and the funding that needs to come with that. So they are trying to access different forms of funding through different kinds of grants and whatnot. So we work with the county frequently to get the funding in place and then meet all the needs of the grants and everything that they're requesting. So I think that being forward thinking has been a really good thing. And I see the vision. And there is a very thoughtful plan for MCRT to grow over the next several years. And Brianna, it kind of sounds like perhaps there was an idea of what type of uh, mental health crisis calls units would be responding to. And now that the idea of what that looks like has expanded, can you talk a little bit more about why that is? I think the reason for that is just the recognition that people's definitions and experiences of behavioral health crises is very different. And I think when you think about historically someone in a mental health crisis, as a society, we really think of people on the extreme edges. And 
trying to take a more proactive approach and stepping in when people are escalating to that point to avoid hospitals, hospitalization is the best way to support people. And the my, one of my favorite things about MCRT that has been just such an amazing surprise is the amount of overwhelmingly positive response from people in the community that we're serving. We do a lot of calls where we're serving very young children who have diagnoses and, you know, the parents just need extra support. And so we're able to help support families and just in ways that, you know, just feel like a a new and fresh approach to support anyone having a crisis. So I just think, you know, the initial thought when people have of a behavioral health crisis is people on far edges of the extreme. I think MCRT is helping with other providers in the community to back up that definition a little bit and be more encompassing to take into account people's individual experience of a crisis in the moment. Because it could look very different if, you know, I'm having a crisis and I'm deeming it as a crisis. It may look very, very different than somebody else. But how can we take my individual experience into account to get me the help I need, I think is really critical for what we do. Are there any things that people can do and and loved ones can do to recognize someone who is experiencing a mental health crisis, given that it looks different for everyone? The number one thing that I encourage everyone to do in all of my presentations is if you think someone around you or someone you love is having a behavioral health crisis, it never hurts to call the Access in Crisis line, which is 888-724-7240 or 988. Because what they'll do is they'll ask you some very simple questions to help you determine if the person is having a behavioral health crisis. And if it meets the threshold or, you know, meets the criteria of MCRT, they will dispatch us to go out. And I think it never hurts to call and ask questions and get information. And if for some reason it's not an MCRT referral, ACL, the Access and Crisis Line, is going to give that person something else to help them in the moment, which will help the whole system of around that person that's experiencing the crisis. That is great information and a great service you all provide. I've been speaking with Brianna Lane and Mary Woods of MCRT Telecare, which operates the county's mobile crisis response unit teams. Thank you both for taking time to talk with us today, and thanks for the work you do. Yeah, thank you so much for having us. It's been great. Yeah, thank you. We're happy to do it. Just this morning, a Shreveport, Louisiana police officer was arrested in the fatal shooting of Alonzo Bagley, who was unarmed. Last month, five officers were charged in the beating death of Tyree Nichols. And just yesterday, two sheriff's deputies who responded to that scene were suspended. The fallout from these cases and countless others highlights police brutality. To help us understand what gives rise to police violence and what can be done to stop it is Tej Rye, a psychologist and assistant professor of management at UC San Diego's Rady School of Management and co-author of the book Virtuous Violence. Welcome back to Midday Edition. Uh, Great to be here. First, when you hear about these recent cases of police brutality, in particular the Nichols case, and all of the officers either directly or indirectly involved, what are your thoughts? I mean, I think at a broad level, it's important to remember that police officers are supposed to be civil servants like any other job to the people, but that's not actually 
how we've positioned them culturally. We t- instead, officers oftentimes see themselves as authorities who have power over civilians and whose orders need to be obeyed. And in that kind of hierarchical system, disobedience, disrespect, or any sort of threat of harm to the officer is, is the worst violation. And, um, you know, even worse than the actual crimes that they're supposed to be policing. And when you have that kind of situation, then the potential for violence is very high. And I I want to dig into that uh, a bit more. But let's take a step back. Your work looks at violence in a broader sense and the factors that often lead to it. Can you walk us through that? Oftentimes, I think we have this idea that when awful things happen, atrocities, acts of violence... It must be because something has sort of gone wrong in the mind of the perpetrator. Their sense of morality seems to have gone awry or something like that. Most of my work argues the opposite. Actually, most of the violence we see occurs when people are hurting others because they think it's the right thing to do, because they think they are obligated to do it, because they think that that behavior is morally praiseworthy and virtuous. And so the Nichols case is a really good example where... I think we should remember that this isn't the case of just a few officers. Um, There are the immediate officers who were involved in the beating, but there were several other officers and personnel who showed up on scene who did nothing. And the officers were taking pictures and sending them to their acquaintances. So presumably they felt that those people would also approve of what was going on. So this isn't a case of people engaging in violence that they knew was wrong, but they wanted to do anyway. This is a case of people engaging in violence that they thought was right and that they thought they would be praised for afterward. Hmm. You know, these two officers who were suspended yesterday are not being accused of participating in the actual beating of Nichols, but how does inaction or complicity play a role in actual violence? Can you talk about the psychology behind that? Yeah, so we know from many years of data that there is a hesitance sometimes for people to get involved. And I think that is especially true in a context like policing, both on the part of civilians, but both on the part of fellow officers. So uh, in this kind of system, officers are often taught not to really question each other, uh, to trust each other's judgment, because that's what's going to keep you alive. And that's what's going to keep you safe. And so the training doesn't really allow for other officers to show up on scene and interfere, even if that's what they wanted to do. And if they did interfere that, and especially if it was interference with a superior ranking officer, then that would be a real problem for them because the hierarchy requires that they follow orders and that they respect the violent actions of those above them. But as I said, if the culture itself thinks that that violence is appropriate, then they may show up on scene and do nothing because they don't actually think that there's anything wrong with this violence necessarily. And, you know, much of this violence uh, is perpetrated against Black people. So how do you see race playing a role in police brutality? I think that it plays a huge role because part of this culture is this idea that many of the officers perceive themselves as Uh, warriors policing a kind of enemy state rather than serving civilians. And the image of who that enemy is often is a minority Black male. And the Nichols case is useful because it shows us that 
um, one proposed reform, which is diversifying the police, isn't going to solve the problem on its own. In, in the Nichols case, many of the officers were Black. But the data shows that diversifying the police does mitigate these problems somewhat. So to the extent that civilians are being policed by non-white officers, the likelihood of police use of force tends to be lower. But all officers, regardless of race, do use force against Black civilians more than uh, non-Black civilians. Can you talk a bit more about where the idea comes from that Black males in particular are part of an enemy state? So if we trace the history of policing back, then there is data to suggest that um, the origins of policing really came out of the end of slavery and a need to police uh, a black population and and segregate those populations from white populations. We also know psychologically that white officers, white people especially, are going to be more likely to perceive uh, black people as older than they are, as more mature than they are, as more capable of physical violence than they are, and that these effects are especially true when perceiving Black men. Right. And so, you know, with the history of policing uh, being born out of slave patrols, um, you know, I mean, what approaches do you think would be most effective to curb police brutality to change that way of thinking? Structurally, oftentimes we have this instinct when we're trying to improve something, there is this kind of bias called subtraction neglect, where if we want to improve something, we think that we need to add to it somehow. So if we want to improve uh, policing, then somehow we need to provide officers with more resources, more funding, more training. When in actuality, sometimes the answer is that's more obvious or more logical is, is the exact opposite, which is if you want to reduce the number of violent police encounters, then we should probably be reducing the number of police civilian encounters in general. So we should give police fewer responsibilities. The Nichols case, again, exemplifies this. Nichols was pulled over for a routine traffic stop. It's not clear why we should have a system where police who are trained in hand-to-hand combat and who are carrying guns are carrying out routine traffic stops. If that situation doesn't exist, then this killing doesn't happen. I think we also need to break up these kinds of scorpion units, which is what they did in that case, these these sort of hotspot policing units where officers are tasked specifically with engaging in violence against civilians with the idea that that's what they're going to do, but they're going to bring that mentality into any encounter that they go into. Motivationally, Like I said, we have this kind of culture uh, where officers aren't seeing themselves as civil servants. They're seeing themselves as authorities. We have to break that culture down. There have to be real punishments. There has to be real accountability. There has to be transparency. Without those things, then we have these sorts of problems where nobody benefits. And then finally, there's been some exciting work cognitively. So people are starting to take techniques from cognitive behavioral therapy and apply them into police training. So here the idea is to get officers to be more reflective about their encounters. This doesn't mean slowing down your thinking in ways that might be dangerous for the officer. Instead, it's telling officers, hey, in the time that you have in this situation, 
We want you to think more about potential alternative hypotheses instead of just thinking about the worst case scenario. And when you do that, officers are less likely to engage in force, it seems like. Now, I've been speaking with Tay Dry, who is a psychologist and professor at UC San Diego's Rady School of Management and co-author of the book Virtuous Violence. Tej, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Jed. Hi, I'm Beth Accomando, KPBS arts reporter and host of the Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm also a geeky gourmet who likes to bake food themed to the movies I watch, like chocolate blood to savor with Dracula, or an extra chewy Wookiee cookie to enjoy with Star Wars. I'm geeky about the things I love, and that makes me a public radio geek as well. I love being able to connect with audiences just like you through TV, radio, the web, and podcasts like the one you're listening to right now. So, are you a KPBS geek? If so, then I'm asking you to get in touch with your inner nerd and become a member of KPBS today. Just go to kpbs.org and click the blue Give Now button and make a donation. That's right. Let's geek out together about the things we love. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. While Valentine's Day may be over, one local hotel's love story with San Diego endures. KPBS reporter Alex Wynn takes us to a beloved hotel in Julian with deep roots in Black history. To everyday tourists, it's a charming bed and breakfast. The only thing that brings to light its history is a bronze plaque in front of the hotel. It reads, Hotel Robinson, 1897, built for Albert Robinson and wife Margaret on the site of the restaurant bakery. It's the sole surviving Julian Mining Era hotel. It's not only the one of the oldest hotels owned by African Americans, but it's also a national site, historical site. Larry Malone is a local historian and wrote a book about black pioneers in San Diego from the 1880s to the 1920s. You know, a lot of people were really surprised that Julian had that rich history of African-American history in Julian. And part of that history started with a love story says Chuck Ambers, the curator of the African Diaspora Museum and Research Center. There's a love relationship between that hotel and Julian, just like there was a love relationship between Albert and Margaret. He says Julian was a sleepy little town founded by former Confederate soldiers before gold was discovered there. It was a little podunk city until Fred Coleman, part of the gold rush up in Sacramento, followed the geological formations down California, followed the San Diego River in Mission Valley back up to its source, hoping that they would find gold just like up in the Sacramento area, and he did. That was 1869 and started the first and only gold rush in San Diego. The gold rush brought many black people to Julian because of the opportunities there. Yeah, they kind of gathered towards that. Among them was Albert Robinson. He shows up here in Julian in 1880 on the census record. That's David Lewis. His family has lived in Julian for four generations. He's the town historian. Albert uh, 
I'm assuming was uh, enslaved wherever he was uh, living at the time. He supposedly came here with a man named Levi Chase. His wife Margaret came to Julian later. She marries Albert in 1886. And so that is when I believe they started a bakery and a restaurant business, I believe here on this site. And they ran that from 1886 until 1902 when, uh, when they built this hotel. What's Fortunate for them, their property, that little restaurant, was right across the street from the city hall where the Butterfield stage line, coming from Arizona, brought travelers. The town hall was also the social hub of Julian. They also held uh, dances there, and these dances could last all night. And according to what I've read, the, the hotel provided meals uh, for those dances at night. Albert died in 1915, and Margaret ran the hotel by herself until 1921, when she sold it for $1,500. Much of the hotel is still as it was when the Robinsons ran it. There's a lot of history in this hotel. Dignitaries and politicians stayed there, including U.S. Grant Jr., the son of President Ulysses Grant, who went on to build the U.S. Grant Hotel in downtown San Diego. For Lewis, it's part of his history and the history of Julian. My great uncle, who used to come here with his family when he was little. And when they get to the front door, Albert would come out and pick him up and put him on his shoulders and walk him on into the hotel. And my uncle uh, says, I felt like I was 10 feet tall. Alexander Wynn, KPPS News. Last week, the NFL announced the nine new members that will be enshrined into the Pro Football Hall of Fame in 2023. And among them is a San Diego football legend known for his high-flying offenses. Late Chargers and San Diego State Aztecs coach Don Coriel will be enshrined into football immortality in August. Longtime Chargers reporter and contributor to Forbes, Jay Paris, spoke with Midday Edition producer Andrew Bracken about how Coriel changed the way football is played today. So when you hear the name Don Coriel, one word that seems to come up a lot is innovator. What is it that made him such a football innovator? Well, you, you really can't, uh, Andrew, write the history of the NFL without uh, going to the contributions of uh, Don Coriel. Obviously, the offensive side of the ball with his uh, love of throwing throwing the football and putting the football in the air and, and testing the defense and going where no other coach had ever gone before. I mean, he, he also was a big eye formation, the, the running game staple at USC. And, and he leaned on that so much before he turned to a, a mad scientist with the, throwing the ball, if you will. Then you look defensively with, with Don, you know, using four or five receivers at a time that completely changed the complexion of defenses. They had to add another defensive back. There was usually just, four defensive backs and two cornerbacks. Now there's five and it's called the nickel package. And then the, they had to put another one in. It was the dime package. And so this gentleman just had his fingerprints, obviously on the offensive side, but defensively as well. And if you're going to talk about those two things, you have to talk about coaching. Now you have to prepare for all this. So I can think of a few other gentlemen in the NFL who have had such an impact on offense, defense, and coaching. And oh, yes, it's in the entertainment business. Those teams were certainly entertaining. So he gets a star there as well, Andrew. 
And, and you, you know, you talked about how he changed the offense. He's probably most famous for the Air Coriel offense the Charger teams became known for. Can you talk a little bit more about, you know, how that was introduced and what made it so unique in the NFL at that time? Well, you got to remember that it was, you know, the NFL could be spelled with two words or to explain with two words, status quo. You ran the ball and then the other guy ran the ball and then they ran the ball a little bit more. Coach Corio came in and said, you know, this is nonsense. Let, let's throw the ball. I've, I've got Dan Fouts here. I've got all these great wide receivers. You know, where does it say you have to run the ball the first two downs and then be third and long and, and be forced to throw it when the other team knows you're going to throw it. Why not throw it on first down, second down? So what he did, he he wanted the defense, Andrew, to have to defend every inch of the field. Vertically, with two deep threats at all time, and horizontally as well, by throwing to the running backs and the tight end and and transforming the game in the position that Kellen Winslow is tied in by using him. So, you know, while other people were kind of stuck in this time machine because they weren't bold enough, they weren't comfortable enough in their own ideas and they weren't brash and they, they, they didn't have the guts that Don Coriel did. And he said, look, we're going to try to win, the, win it this way and let's see what's happened. And I think it should be noted too, Andrew, in 1978, it's called the Mel Blanc rule. But after that, defenders could only hit you five yards off the line of scrimmage. So you could wrestle with a guy a little bit and throw off his timing a little, little bit. You could do that all the way down the field before 78. So with that new rule, Don Coriel took advantage of it. If they can only muscle my guy at the line of scrimmage, that's going to give him free reign down the field. And Coriel's, his San Diego roots actually ran deeper than those 70s and 80s Charger teams, you know, he's famous for. He was also the head coach for San Diego State's football team for 12 years and led to some of their most successful seasons. What can you tell us about his time there? 1960, the Aztecs were one, six, and one. They hired Don Coriel in 1961. They were 7-2-1. Immediately switched the persona, switched the uh, the reputation of San Diego football. And he did it uh, early on he ran, but uh, in the mid-60s had a quarterback by the name of Don Horn who was a sensational quarterback. So they started throwing the ball more, and he threw it more and more. And you got to remember San Diego State was, for lack of a better term, was, it was designed as a small college school. They weren't Division One, So – they couldn't really run the ball with these big athletes because all those big athletes were going to SC and UCLA. So, so Don say, look, we can't beat those guys playing conventional football. Let's, let's go there. Cause we don't have the, we don't have the horses to pull the cart. If you will, we don't have the athletes. Wonder if we try to out coach them. Wonder if we try to out scheme them. Wonder if we try to show them a brand of football that they've seldom seen, seldom practiced against, and certainly uh, aren't used to. So he switched to the throwing the football round. It was Air Coriel uh, 1.0, if you would, before he came to the Chargers. Immediately, the, the Aztecs start winning. They had three undefeated seasons. At one time, they had a 25-game winning streak that ended in 1967. But you got to remember, Andrew, they were averaging 40,000 people a game. They were averaging more than the San Diego Chargers at that time, which just shows you the impact that, that Don had at the local level first and then certainly with the Chargers. I mean, it, it was entertaining. It was fun. It was a place to be, all because of that uh, crazy mad scientist, Don Coriel. For many in the football world, the news of his induction into the Pro Football Hall of Fame, which will happen later this year, it's a little overdue, isn't it? Absolutely. Uh, you know, a, a six-time finalist, and uh, people that know football know of his uh, contributions, know of his 
innovative ways. And and really, that's not me talking, Arlo. You talk to any football guy who who, who will say that. But just turn on the TV. <laughs> Every game has a uh, a little snippet of Don Carriel. All the teams throw the ball now. All the teams uh, don't like to run it, and they rather pass the ball. I mean, this is all Don Coriel. So, like, it's a uh, it's almost a relief that he's in more than a celebration, which is kind of sad. I mean, his work sp- spoke for itself. So now that he's finally in, it's kind of everybody just exhaled. Uh, Dan Fouts says, I'm not in the Hall of Fame with, without Don Coriel. So did Kellen Winslow. So did Charlie Joyner. I mean, he put them in the Hall of Fame. And for those three gentlemen to be in it without their mentor in it, it, it really stung them. So the, the joy that I know his family feels and, and uh, all the people associate him, his ex-players are ecstatic for him. Because not only was Don <laughs> crazy with the offense, he was a little bit of a quirky dude anyway. But he was kind of like this this quirky mad scientist. Like one time he pulled up with trash cans in his in his trunk because he forgot to put them on the curb when he left his his home that day. You know, he just he, he would do wild stuff that that would endear him to his players for sure. <laughs> That's great, great stories there. <laughs> um, you you know you mentioned his family. He did pass away right. almost thirteen years ago. What has been the reaction from his family to this news? Uh, you know. I think uh, a combination of relief and uh, sadness that that Don's not here. I mean, uh, he was so instrumental in getting so many other people that gold jacket and, and to be enshrined in Canton, Ohio, that for, for him not to get it, it, it didn't really seem like a Hall of Fame without Don Coriel in it. You know, how, how can it be? And now his family and his friends, they, they can rejoice. But I know there's a tinge of, of sadness that that Don couldn't get up there and give one of his goofy speeches and, uh, and, and invite everybody over for wine afterwards. And I'm curious if there's, you know, a particular game or a play that comes to mind when you hear the name Don Coriel. Think of the great epic playoff game in Miami uh, in 80, 81 season when, when, you know, they came back and won in overtime. Uh, so many great victories. But, but almost when you bring up the, the great victories, you you're reminded of the heartache and you, you ask why it's taken so long for Don to be in the hall of fame is because he didn't reach a super bowl. He didn't win a super bowl. And that's kind of the, the gold standard, if you will, in, in the NFL. But, you know, I just think of those playoff games and, and, and how the, the chargers were never out of a game and, and they were entertaining. And that's what made going to charger games, you know, so much fun. So, you know, five times they led the league in total offense. Six times in passing yards, three times in scoring. So it's got to be a high-scoring game. And, and and I always look back at that uh, that overtime win in Miami against the Dolphins. You know, they would lose the next week uh, in, in the Freezer Bowl against the Cincinnati Bengals. You know, they had two shots at the Super Bowl. They lost both AFC Conference title games with Don. So that, that held him back a little bit. But to... Uh, to have that eclipse all his contributions is a it was is a bad mark that the NFL is finally set right. And finally, another major figure in Chargers history, former general manager Bobby Bethard recently passed away. I wonder if you could share a few words about his legacy to the Chargers. I know you had a personal connection to him. Yeah, I, w- I was lucky in that uh, Bobby Bethard was exceptionally access- accessible, friendly. And it, it took a rookie beat writer, me, <laughs> under his wing a little bit. Uh, I lived in Cardiff. He lived in Lucadia. And we would carpool most mornings together, which was a big high cotton for a guy who'd never covered a team. And here's a guy who would eventually have his fingerprint on seven Super Bowl teams with Miami and 
Washington Redskins and the Chargers. So he came home in 1990 after a stellar career with the Redskins. First pick ever was the great junior Seau at Oceanside. And he helped the Chargers to their lone Super Bowl. He was there 10 seasons. And, uh, you know, the Chargers weren't very good for a long time. And and Bobby Beathard showed up and he he gave him pizzazz and he gave him a touch of class and he gave him winning football, which was uh, really rare around here. So I, I want to say Bobby was a great NFL man, and he was. But he was also a San Diego, perfect San Diego dude. He loved to surf. He loved to be engaging. He wore a smile as often as the, the sun was out. And uh, one, one of the all-time greats in this last couple of weeks, some mixed emotions for, for Charger uh, followers, Charger fans. You know, raise a glass both for Don Coriel and, and the great Bobby Beathard. That was Coast News columnist and Forbes contributor Jay Paris speaking with Midday Edition producer Andrew Bracken. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu. You're listening to KPBS Midday Edition. I'm Jade Hindman. The High Table is a 2020 play by British playwright Timmy Wilkie, and Diversionary Theater in San Diego will present its American premiere this month. The play follows an engaged LGBTQ couple, Tara and Leah, who face rejection from Tara's Nigerian parents while their ancestors, suspended in the stars, are deciding on the fate of the wedding. KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon-Evans spoke with director Niyi Coker Jr. and actor Andrea Augusto. Here's their conversation. Andrea, let's start with you. Can you tell us a little bit about this play? The High Table um, focuses on Tara and Leah. Tara is engaged to Leah. They're about to get married. They're super excited. Um, And then comes, of course, meeting the parents, which, as we know, can go one of a few ways. Uh, Meanwhile, as she introduces her fiancé to her parents, her ancestors are watching and deciding if they should bless this wedding and this union. Um, it's a lot of fun, but there's also a lot of like really tender, heartfelt moments. There are moments that are going to make you smile, moments that are going to make you think, and moments that are just going to like really make you smile just because there's so much love in this particular piece. There's love between the family members, even though they show it maybe differently. It's all about understanding and trying to learn each other's love languages and trying to figure out why people are doing things the way that they are doing them. Because if they're doing it from a place of love, you think that might be good, but you also have to understand when you love somebody, you also have to continue to put their needs in mind as well. And can you explain the title for us? The high table um, refers to a Nigerian wedding tradition where the newlyweds and their family, such as their parents, are seated on a seated on a at a table that's typically on a stage or a raised platform. So it's slightly elevated or higher than the rest of the table. And me, how else does this play approach Nigerian culture? In this circumstance, we're looking at an ancestral intervention. Because in the traditional African context, the ancestors are actually part of part and parcel of your spiritual connection to the cosmos. So um, your ancestors are, you know, great grandparents or grandparents or parents who've passed on. 
um, never used the word died. You know, they passed on to the next realm. And in that next realm, you depend on your ancestors to intervene for you with the deities and the almighty, the creator and the supreme being. And it's not a he or she. So in that sense and in that depth, play carries a lot of weight and actually explores historical contexts and the um, existence of the people pre-invasion, so to speak. Andrea, can you tell us a little bit about how the ancestors are involved with your character and what is Tara's relationship with them? The ancestors are summoned as um, I bring my fiance over and they are trying to divine and understand and hear things, but they also complain that they can't hear as well as they used to. They can't hear earth or aye as it is referred to on the show, um, as well as they used to because it used to be that the descendants used to call upon the dead and call upon their ancestors. And when they would do that, they would seek their counsel, seek their guidance and seek their support. Now we're at a place, you know, in the 2020s where we're not talking to our ancestors. We're not going into that connection with them. So because of that, they can't really understand what's going on. And they are guessing at first to try to figure out what's happening with me and my fiance. When they finally find out, then it becomes a struggle between the ancestors, but they are still trying to intervene on her behalf and try to do what they think is best for her. I mean, that's what family does. And they don't always talk directly to her because, again, very similar to family. They try to do what's best for you without necessarily having to involve you in their decisions, which I also find very interesting. And so in addition to this cultural, this ancestral context, I imagine that LGBTQ love is sometimes hard to reconcile by an older generation with traditional values. Ni, can you tell us about how that unfolds in the play, particularly with the way it's handled across generations with with the father's generation, for example? Yeah, with the father's generation, uh, the father's generation is one that's essentially been colonized. He's a doctor who lives in San Diego, belongs to a church community. Of course, everybody goes in those prayer communities to the book of Leviticus and talks about how, you know, it's forbidding, it's a taboo, it's um, abomination, et cetera, et cetera. So the, the, the characters have to wrestle with that. And they have to wrestle with that in the context of, I want the best for my child. And in wanting the best for my child, I have to face this conflict. But it's done in a very lighthearted, comic way. People listen more or adhere more to laughter and being able to lighten uh, serious situations and go home and actually really think about what they've just watched. And the younger generation, they're still drawn to their culture. These, These characters still celebrate their culture despite the elders rejecting them. And they still love their families and, and those elders. Andrea, can you talk a little bit about that and how these characters find balance? When it comes to like any kind of, you know, cultural journey, it starts by realizing your disconnection. And I think that ends up happening um, for specifically for Tara in the play because of something that happened. And she has to examine her connection, not only just to her, her culture, but like, what does that really mean as far as terms of her family? How much has she been kept from it? How much has been hidden away because of either fear or shame? And because she does not want to live in a place of fear 
or shame, she gets to the point where she wants to reconnect and reaches out to her ancestors and calls upon them and asks them to intervene. And that's kind of, you know, similar to a lot of people. Something will happen in our lives that will force us to reevaluate our morals, our desires, our dreams, and our hopes. And we've got, you know, kind of a defining, life-defining, personhood-defining decision to make. Andrea, I, I wanted to ask you what drew you to the script and in particular this role. When I read this script, I cried. I could not put it down. I devoured it in one night. And I had to stop and reevaluate what is it that is doing this to me? <laughs> Why am I feeling this way? And I realized it's because I feel like in my own personal life, maybe I also am looking to reconnect with ancestry in some type of way. I've actually started doing my own genealogy and studying my own family tree to find out even more about my particular family and my, my family's history. And to see it done in this way, where everything connects and culminates for this person, for Tara, I think is beautiful. And I think it also just inspires me and gives me hope that I will be able to find these connections that I am myself looking for. And I think that another part of it is the fact that there's queer ancestry mentioned in this piece. And it's something that we don't hear about, especially being Black, especially being Afro-Latina. You don't hear a lot about that kind of ancestry within your family a lot of times. The only people that I've known, especially now as an adult, are the people in my generation, my age range. But we don't, and, if, and I know that they existed, but that history is just not recorded or it's just not talked about. And to talk about something that is not talked about, the love that dare not say its name, I remember it being called growing up, it's a beautiful thing. That is a way to live loudly. It is a way to live bravely. And it is a way to make sure that your connection to your culture and your ancestry is authentic because you are living in your fullest self. And Ni, how about you? What what drew you to the script? I was fortunate enough to have been invited to read the script and, uh, you know, look at it as the possibility of something I may want to direct. And um, I would say, you know, on the first night, actually, of reading the first draft, I just thought, whoa, this is this is a loaded script and I most definitely would do, you know, any and everything to want to work on this script um, and on this production. On another level, I have been a very strong critic and advocate against the brutalization, the senseless arrests of LGBTQ people in Africa. There's so much hate around the world. And I mean, if people find love where they find love, who are we to basically tell people who they are to love and why they're to love. And, you know, we should just be happy that people are happy. And um, that really touches a nerve because it makes people really think again and allows people to explore the damage that colonization and miseducation and this religions that have come from foreign lands have imposed on a culture and a custom that was otherwise just, you know, didn't have any of this hierarchies or any kind of sexual discrimination assigned to it. This is really groundbreaking. That was director Nigi Coker and actor Andrea Augusto speaking with KPBS arts producer Julia Dixon Evans. The play opens February 18th and runs through March 5th at Diversionary Theater. KPBS On Demand is supported by the San Diego County Toyota dealers, whose commitment to customers extends to giving back to the community and who are proud to support the City of San Diego lifeguards with their important role of keeping our beaches safe. Toyota, let's go places. 